Welcome, curious explorers, to episode three of Where's Next, the podcast that brings you the origin stories of the countries we explore to help us understand the built environments around us. I'm your host, Jack Thompson from Backpackers Blueprint, and today we'll be taking on Nicaragua. Nicaragua is the largest of the five original Central American countries that we identified in episode two, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, and Costa Rica. Honduras is to the north border and Costa Rica is to the south border. For the past 17 years, Nicaragua has been under the leadership of Daniel Ortega of the La Libertad Party. The country is famous for its volcanoes. It is naturally beautiful with incredible beaches and extensive jungle. The lowlands to the southwest of the country are where most travelers spend their time. And there is a main arch of a road that runs down from Chinandega all the way to the border of Costa Rica, the Penas Blancas border. As you travel down this artery, the main stops are the city of Leon, which is famed for its universities, Granada, the lake town, Managua for a quick stop in the capital, and San Juan del Surf for the surf and the party. Oh, and of course, there's Ometepe for some spirituality and yoga. To paint you a better picture of Nicaragua, I want you to imagine a sandwich. On the bottom of the sandwich, the first bread layer, you have the Pacific Ocean running all the way down the west coast. Next, you have the more dry lowlands where it's more flat and arid. Then, you have the main artery road. On top of the main artery road, you have the extensive or the emergence of more extensive greenery. Then on top of that greenery, you have two long lakes running north to south. And then finally, on top of the lakes, you have the final bread layer. And this bread layer needs to be a very, very thick slice. In fact, almost two thirds of this sandwich needs to be the top layer of bread. And that top layer is effectively the extensive jungle portion of Nicaragua. The two lakes allow passage to the northeastern side of Nicaragua as they are separated by land. You are able to pass over the top of the northernmost lake as well as between the two lakes. The northernmost lake is called Lagos Lotlan. The southernmost lake is Lake Nicaragua. In Lake Nicaragua you'll find two volcanoes called Concepcion and Madeiras. These are joined together at the bottom of their skirts just enough to form a landmass to allow you to traverse by road from one volcano to the other. This landmass of the two volcanoes makes up what is called Ometepe Island. Due to the extensive size of Lake Nicaragua, a Chinese businessman by the name of Wang Jing proposed a canal all the way through the country, much like the Panama Canal, to extensively reduce the time of crossing. Now, this seems to have disappeared from the forefront of ideas. However, it is still being talked about in the background, but we don't know what will happen. We'll see in the future. Nicaragua is where you will need to fall in love with one thing, gallo pinto or beans and rice. In fact, in Nicaragua, they say they have three meals, breakfast of gallo pinto, lunch of gallo pinto and dinner of pinto and gallo. It's a country that's very easy to be vegetarian in and to be honest with you, it's pretty easy to be vegan as well. So now we know a bit more about the geography, let's get into the history. 
In this episode, we're going to cover the indigenous people who roamed Nicaragua, from the Nicaro to the Rama. We'll then go on to the Spanish and their effects on Nicaragua, before looking at its own independence. We'll talk about the American occupation, before going on to the Somoza era, then the Nicaraguan revolution, and then we'll finally have a look at everything that's effectively happened since then. We're able to get a much more overarching view of Nicaragua, as the timeline, once you know it, is a lot more clean cut than countries like Mexico, which have more history than you can shake a stick at. So, let's get into this episode of Where's Next? start at an unknown date. What do I mean by this? The fact of the matter is that we don't really have a huge amount of information regarding the early indigenous of Nicaragua. Archaeological evidence suggests human presence can be traced to at least 8000 BCE, however we're going to skip forward in time here to where we can be more sure of the timelines and dates. One of the best ways to help identify time periods is through language. As we do not see the spectacles of architecture here that we did in Guatemala, Honduras or Mexico. The existence of the indigenous pre-Columbian is much more light touch and gentle on the environment. A quick aside here as I did not mention Toltec in the Mexico episode so I'll add them in here. The Aztec considered Toltec to be their intellectual and cultural predecessors and it's believed they spoke a form of Nahuatl which is a well-known language in the Uto-Aztecan family, a family of languages that largely encompasses Mexico and Central America, as well as small parts of just north of Mexico in the USA. You'll see why this is important in a second. Around 1200 CE, a group of people who had become known as the Nicaro split from the Pipil, who we heard about in the last episode on Guatemala. We know that the Pipil had origins from the Aztecs in the heartland of Mexico, and the Pipil would splinter from the Aztec. In turn, the Nicaro would split from the Pipil, moving further south each time. The Pipil splinter group would take Nahuatl with them, their language. In the same manner, we're able to see the emergence of the Chibcham speaking peoples during the pre-classic period, roughly between 2000 BC and 1000 CE. However, they would come from the south. Chipchan was largely associated with South American countries, whereas Nahuatl would be associated with northern regions as just mentioned. Thus, what we see is the area of Central America as an osmosis point of nomadic peoples reaching from present-day Mexico down to northern parts of South America. So let's look at these groups in a little more depth, starting with the group the country would be named after, the Nicaro. The Nicaro left their linguistic imprint on the region. Their architectural heritage includes dwellings crafted from local materials, often featuring wooden structures with thatched roofs. These homes were adapted to the tropical climate, providing shelter against the elements. 
the Nicaro would settle around Lake Nicaragua and were known for their engagement in agriculture, fishing and trade, all of which contributed to the social economic fabric of the region. Despite the challenges brought by the arrival of the Spanish, elements of the Nicaro's language and cultural practices have endured, leaving an indelible mark on the history and heritage of Nicaragua. On the west coast, we would find the Chorotega people. The Chorotega extended their influence into parts of Honduras and Costa Rica. They had a particularly advanced grasp of pottery and they were also efficient farmers and traded a lot with the other tribes around them. Venturing into the lush eastern regions past the lakes, we meet the Mayanga people with their settlements in the Bosawas biosphere region. Theirs was a world shaped also by agriculture but they lived harmoniously in the lands that echoed through the rainforests of Nicaragua. They would live in traditional houses again, largely crafted from wooden thatch and extensively these homes would be taken back by the earth. Along the Caribbean coast, the rhythmic waves welcomed the Mosquito people. The Mosquito were seafarers and traders. The Mosquito brought life to the shores, showcasing their skills in navigation and fishing. Their architecture also consisted of timber buildings with thatched roofs, however, these were raised on stilts. Finally, on the eastern coast, we find Rama Kay, which would be home to the Rama people. These were fishers and navigators. The Rama contributed their unique chapter to the coastal narrative of Nicaragua. In a similar manner to the Mosquito, their architecture consisted of houses perched on stilts, which was a response to frequent flooding and the changeable water levels. These dwellings, made from woods and palm thatch, are not just architectural symbols, but they also show the adaptation to the challenges possessed in their unique environment. The indigenous tribes had a sustainable and harmonious existence with nature. Their daily routines largely consisted of agriculture, fishing and hunting as well as some trade. The inland communities cultivated maize, beans and squash, forming the basis of their diets, whereas coastal dwellers like the Mosquito and the Rama relied much more heavily on fishing and maritime activities. Social structures were often communal, with shared responsibilities for tasks like farming and construction, and indigenous communities had distinct cultural practices, creating intricate pottery, textiles, and engaging in other traditional ceremonies. The day-to-day -day life also involved trade and interaction between different tribes, which fostered cultural exchanges. Each tribe had small variations in their dwellings, which reflected their adaptability to the varied environments. Things were simple, things were more in balance. They were by no means perfect. However, this was very much a time more based around food and shelter requirements than consumerism. The arrival of the Spanish in the 16th century brought profound changes, disrupting these traditional ways of life and introducing new elements that would shape the future of Nicaragua. Within three decades, the indigenous population of around one million would drop to just the tens of thousands. 
So let's now move away from the simplicity of the indigenous way of life and briefly talk about the Spanish. I do want to do this relatively quickly because if you've listened to the first two podcasts, then we know how this goes by now. However, the first key person we need to know about from the Spanish conquistadors is Pedro de Villa. The villa would be pressed back by the indigenous people, so in his place he would send a gentleman called Francisco Hernandez de Cordoba. And Cordoba would be the founder of the cities of Granada and Leon, which is why we are able to see the Spanish architecture formation. Again, check out episodes 1 and 2 if you want a deeper look at Spanish city planning. Through a spot of jealousy, de Villa actually had Hernandez de Cordoba killed, so he could become the governor of Nicaragua, which he did in 1527, and he remained in this position until his own death in 1531. Leon and Granada would remain as small independent outposts for the Spanish, however a new player would come into the scene in the 17th century, the British. On the east coast, way away from Leon and Nicaragua, in the late 17th century, Great Britain formed an alliance with the Mosquito people, where the community of Bluefield still is today, and it would further become a British dependency in 1740. Now, to jump about a little bit, we know the story of independence of these Central American countries from Spain. However, to glide over it, The revolt started in Mexico, it succeeded after almost a decade of struggle, at which point we find the first empire of Mexico. This in turn collapsed after just two years when key players from Guatemala became frustrated with the first emperor of Mexico, Augustin de Itabide. In 1838, Nicaragua would have its independency, however, now the wider struggle was finished an internal struggle would begin to rage. The once small outposts of Granada and Leon would become fierce enemies as the liberal Leon and the conservative Granada would joust for control over the country. The continual back and forth would lead to the city of Leon calling for help from further afield. Their man was the American William Walker. Walker arrived into Lyon in 1855 with a small army and he managed to insert himself into the wider affairs of Nicaragua and he in turn declared himself president just a year later in 1856. Thanks for the help, Walker. Walker had expansion on the agenda, however, he also attempted to establish a slave-holding republic in Central America, and this really caused alarm to the neighbouring countries, particularly Costa Rica and Honduras. So, in 1857, a coalition of the Central American forces, with support from the United States, opposed Walker's regime. Facing military pressure and an internal dissent, Walker eventually surrendered to the US Navy officials in May of 1857 and returned home to the United States. Following this farcical episode, an agreement between Lyon and Granada was put in place. A new capital city would be formed to help dissolve the civil war, 
which is where we can say hello to Managua. Following the formation of Managua, the British dependency on the east coast would also be brought back under the umbrella of Nicaragua's landmass, reforming the country as a whole in 1860. However, it would retain its autonomy. It would not be until around 40 years later that the Mosquito Coast would come fully under the veil of Nicaragua again in 1893. So we have it. We have Nicaragua, the country. So things would remain peaceful, right? Well, no, unfortunately not. This is the part of the story where we're going to get into the US occupation. In 1893 to 1909, Nicaragua would be ruled by the liberal dictator, there are two words you don't usually hear in the same sentence, Jose Santos Zelaya. Why liberal? Because Zelaya was a staunch nationalist. He would bring investment to infrastructure and education in the country. However, he would not be an all-encompassing and popular leader, and the US would come to take advantage of this. The US would be looking at joining the Pacific Ocean to the Caribbean Sea for shipping purposes through a canal. This project would eventually become the Panama Canal. With the Panama project in place, Zelaya would begin to open up the door talking to people and other countries further afield about their own canal project. Now, as you can imagine, this really ruffled the feathers of the US, who had to effectively keep an eye on their investment. So how did the US do this? Well, they helped fund a revolt to overthrow Zelaya. The US played a supporting role to the rebels led by Jan Jose Estrada, and Zelaya would eventually step aside. Not content with the liberal replacement, however, the US would stay pitch-side, keeping an eye on their own invested interest as further civil wars began to erupt. In 1911, the conservative Adolfo Diaz would take the top job. However, Nicaragua's civil unrest would be at fever pitch. And when a general by the name of Luis Mena convinced the National Assembly to name him successor to the unpopular pro-US Diaz, naturally, the US wanted to keep Diaz in place, so they would invade and occupy Nicaragua militarily from 1912 to 1933. Over the next two decades, the US Marines were intermittently deployed to quell rebellions working alongside the friendly governments, in quotes friendly there, to maintain stability. I finished our last podcast by saying that we'll find out why Nicaragua's national sport is baseball and good news guys, we're at that time because, well, you've probably already guessed why. So initially, American gold miners, traders and workers who came to the region were believed to have set up games. However, the American military presence is the major factor. American soldiers and marines stationed in the country simply played baseball. And this exposure contributed to the spread and adoption of the sport among the local population. Some of the players getting good enough to play in the Major League Baseball MLB in the US. And Nicaragua did well as a country in this sport during international competition, so it really led to wide-scale popularity and adoption. So, now you know. 
Let's now move on to a new passage and phase as we begin to see the American military move away from Nicaragua. So why was that? Well, liberal leaders including Jan Bautista Sacasa, Jose Maria Moncatar and Augusto Cesar Santino were becoming tired of the US military intervention stepping up their own rebellion pressures. The US would start to withdraw not only due to this, but due to a combination of challenges including changing political dynamics, international criticism, and a general shift in US policy or foreign policy away from more cooperative to non-interventionalist approaches. And while this slow withdrawal seemed to appease Jan Sacasa and Jose Moncada, Sandino would fight on as long as the US was still in the country. Remarkably, both of the previous men, not Sandino, Moncada and Sacasa would both see the presidency. Moncada in 1928-33 and Sacasa in 1933-36. Now, Sandino would continue to be the lasting liberal, but would finally come to submit under Sacasa. And this was largely due to the last of the US Marines leaving Nicaragua. However, this would be too little too late for Sandino as there was already a plot for his assassination underway. A Nicaraguan National Guard trained by the US Marines by the name of General Anastasio Somoza Garcia was now responsible for maintaining order in the country of Nicaragua. In 1934, high-ranking officers led by Somoza met and agreed to the assassination of Sandino. They took Sandino and his brother Socrates and two of his generals to a crossroad section in Managua and executed them. After this event, Somoza would then depose Sacasa with the support of factions of both liberals and conservatives and in a rigged election become president himself on January the 1st, 1937. You really can't make this stuff up. This is where we're going to find some hard years for Nicaragua because during this time, Somoza would increase the economic exports of the country, but he would pocket all the returns in an outrageously biased dictatorship. The Somoza regime was marked by political authoritarianism, widespread corruption and brutal suppression of all those who opposed the Somoza rule. Naturally, this would cause large unrest, and Somoza would be shot and killed himself by the liberal poet named Rigoberto López Pérez. Unfortunately, though, the presidency would be quickly passed to his son, Luis Somoza de Baile. The Somoza would rig, or the Somoza family under Luis, would continue to rig elections and run even if just pulling the strings behind a puppet president for over 40 years. So as you can imagine, underneath this brutal dictatorship, there was an air of unrest with the people of Nicaragua. And although failed, 
Sandino's liberal agenda would re-emerge in 1961 when the Sandinista National Liberation Front, or in Spanish, the Frente Sandinista de Liberación Nacional, or the FSLN party, would be formed to oppose Somoza by liberal, fed-up Nicaraguans. The party and its followers would become known as Sandinistas. Sandino's politics and what he stood for would live on in the hearts and minds of many Nicaraguan families and it still does today. In the major cities, you're able to find murals of Sandino as well as the FSLN. If you want to see some of these beautiful murals, then I managed to capture a few images of them from Leon and Ometepe during a motorbike tour. So check them out on the website backpackersblueprint.com and go to the Nicaragua section and naturally the Leon or Ometepe chapters. So now let's go back to the Somoza era, which would end in a really turbulent and gory manner. Throughout the 1970s, the Sandinista guerrilla movement would really gain support. And in 1974, the Sandinistas kidnapped some Somoza elites. They wanted in return the release of political prisoners, which they would gain. However, this really upped the stakes in the battle of good versus evil, as Somoza would push a counter-offensive which would result in the deaths of thousands of innocent Nicaraguans. To make matters even worse, in 1978, the Somoza government assassinated Pedro Joaquin Chamorro, a really prominent journalist and opposition figure critical of the Somoza regime. This triggered widespread protests and increased opposition to Somoza's rule. The protests were met with brutal repression and this just further added fuel to the fire of discontent. The Sandinistas would reply by occupying the National Palace, holding more than 1,000 hostages for two days, but they did win most of their demands in doing so. In the final months of the revolution, the Sandinistas launched a major offensive against the capital city, Managua, and faced with ongoing internal dissent, military defeats, and the loss of support from the United States, yes, they are still kicking around, Somoza fled the country in July 17, 1979. This date would finally mark the end of this brutal dictatorship. So what happened next? Because at this point we still don't have our happily ever after with Nicaragua. The Sandinistas took over government and with it inherited a plethora of challenges including the economy in the gutter, more than half a million homeless, just widespread poverty. So even though they had taken over, they would officially be voted into government in 1985 with a gentleman called Daniel Ortega taking the presidency. He will pop up very soon again. Remember that name. The government implemented a series of social reforms, including land redistribution, literacy campaigns and improvements in healthcare and education. But they would also see revolts of their own and counter-revolutionaries called Contas. And unbelievably, these were yet again funded by the US. 
1919, the Sandinistas would be voted out of government. They would have a peaceful handover to Violeta Chamorro, a candidate supported by a coalition of opposing groups. But Violeta would effectively reverse quite quickly a lot of the Sandinista policies. So what we end up with at this point from 1990 to 2007 is a heck of a lot of political jousting with the Sandinista party and Daniel Ortega missing out on several elections. So now let's come to 2007 when Daniel Ortega would regain the presidency and he still remarkably remains there today. Right, this is important because this podcast is not an opinion piece, so I'm going to tread lightly here, but internally, Ortega seems to have done some good for Nicaragua initially, decreasing poverty and increasing the economics of the country. However, as time has gone on, issues have arisen around what you can only call political smoke and mirrors so what do i mean by that well let's have a look at it so for example money from cheap oil which was in turn sold on at market price seems to have gone directly to the ortega family interests in a samosa like manner further the sandinista government seemingly took advantage of its large majority in government and removed the maximum re-election term clause which effectively gave Ortega a walkthrough of a re-election after what was described as a sham of an election. Finally, following social reform proposals, protests ensued in 2018, which were met with extreme violence by the Ortega rule. Today, in a House of Cards-like plot, the vice president of Nicaragua is none other than Ortega's wife, with latest policies including no news other than that authorised by government, yep, you heard that right, and no traitors of government clause being able to run for re-election. However, as you can probably guess from this, the word traitor seems to stand for those who seem to run against the Ortega family at all. The future of Nicaragua seems to hang yet again in the balance, as at grassroots level there seems to be some unrest among the people of Nicaragua, with the spotlight being sharply pointed at the Ortega family, so we will see what happens in years to come hopefully things remain peaceful. And with that, I want to give a quick final overview and then let you guys get back to the rest of your day. So what have we learned today? We have learned of the indigenous people who inhabited Nicaragua of the classic period. We heard about their light touch architecture and sustainable lifestyle and how we seem to have an osmosis point of indigenous who ventured from Mexico and from South America. We learned of the Spanish invasion which decimated the indigenous population from around a million to just tens of thousands. And we discovered cities like Leon and Granada became outposts, however would erupt into civil war against each other following independence from the Spanish. We learnt of William Walker and his attempt to take Nicaragua for himself before being given short shrift by the masses, further leading to the creation of Managua. We discovered the British held a part of Nicaragua before it was reclaimed. 
We then discovered that the US had a long military occupation due to the Zelaya leadership after he effectively rubbed the US the wrong way following their works on the Panama Canal. We also discovered the occupation was the source of baseball becoming the national sport of Nicaragua. We found a liberal uprising against the US military presence led by Sandino and found he would be murdered by a Nicaraguan general trained by the US by the name of Somoza, who would take the presidency for himself. We would find over 40 years of brutal dictatorship before the creation of a guerrilla party, the FSLN, or the Sandinista party, that held the values of Sandino. We found they would grow in following and finally out the Somoza family in 1978. We then find the FSLN would be voted out of power in 1990 before regaining it under Daniel Ortega in 2006. The final thing we found is that the Ortega family seemed to be doing some good for poverty and the economics of Nicaragua, but we have also found that the Ortega family is cultivating an image for themselves that is much more in line with Somoza than Sandino, creating a bit of unrest in the country. I don't want to end on this negative, so I'm going to say the following. I was lucky enough to visit Nicaragua in 2002 and found it to be a beautiful and exciting country full of incredible places to explore and a lot of things to do from volcano boarding to surfing or chilling out in the spiritual and yoga haven of Ometepe. The people here are wonderfully friendly and cities like Leon and Granada are so, so fun to explore. So if you want to visit as with anywhere, have a quick look at the situation before you go. But for backpackers, it's generally safe other than for the usual caveats like pickpockets. However, it's also frankly a heck of a lot of fun in that country. If you go, let us know what you think. And further, if you head into Leon, I can highly, highly recommend the free walking tour. The city prides itself on poetry and the universities. Your guide will give you even more insights into Nicaragua, the Spanish architecture, and you'll also be able to see the political murals and sculptures that we have spoken about today. Finally, join us next time when we skip the border into Costa Rica, home of the most biodiverse national parks on Earth and the epicentre of sustainability. I can't wait to speak to you more then. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, then please check out the website at backpackersblueprint.com where we will be putting blog posts on the cities we have spoken about today so you can get a deeper understanding of the architecture and history of cities. Thanks for your listening. Share this with your friends and let's speak soon. Peace out, you curious, wonderful people. Mm -hmm.